you ever wonder how two dudes can pump out over 250 podcasts per year and not charge a penny for it? Generous people like you make it all possible. There are lots of great ways to support us, but one of the simplest is to straight up throw us cash. Go to support.ballmove.com to donate via PayPal, and we also accept Bitcoins for all you crypto nerds out there. Oh, down with the fiat currency! Fight the power! Uh, yeah, and support free and independent podcasting. Support.ballmove.com. Welcome to the Bald Move TV podcast, the officially unofficial podcast for all the TV. I'm Jim. And I'm Aaron. Uh, what are we talking about this week? Something, something about a land close by. Milk and honey. Yeah, there's there's a show called Land of Houses. What is it? Homeland. Oh yeah, that's right. Homeland on the time of shows. <laughs> we uh, <laughs> we caught up for the last three episodes. Did not catch up to last night's episodes, which is episode six, which I understand is kind of a barn burner. We're going to talk about that, and then I have an exclusive interview with Shane, the Bowman, Bowman, about the Nick. Uh, that spawn off of a... Can you have a nickname that's the same as your last name? Sure you can. Jim the uh, Jones A-Ron is, Jones. A-Ron is living proof that you can have a nickname that is the same as your name. I feel like it's redundant. Aaron the Aaron, Hubbard Hubbard. Aaron, Aaron, Aaron. Shane the Bowman Bowman. I'm just changing inflection. What's the difference? <laughs> okay. It's All a right. distinction without a difference. But Fine. that's that's the Bo Jackson Jackson. We're saying <laughs> Bo Bo Jackson Jackson. <laughs> uh we we're saving the best for last. We're gonna put that at the end of the podcast. But Bo knows Jackson. First off, we, we need to talk about Homeland. Yeah, we do. Because we said uh, I I didn't understand why. Because I didn't understand why Seppenwall was so down on season three um, mm-hmm. when we left off. We just seen the first two episodes. We had an attempted murder of a bro baby, a broby, if you will. Wait. Yes. This is season four. Season four. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Wasn't sure why he's so down on that. We had an attempted murder of a bro baby, which just seemed like it was in 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 Claire Dane's character and Carrie's character. Sure. We had some interesting, relevant geopolitical discussion and foreign policy discussion regarding drones uh some interesting spy craft and i was kind of like in i'm like okay they've rebooted homeland they got rid of brody and i'm engaged mm-hmm. come back in three episodes now so three episode five what's your opinion uh i don't i don't really get this show i guess um it's hard, like I said in the last episode, it's hard for me to invest in this character who's obviously crazy. Uh, it's it's tough for me to imagine that a character who is diagnosed as a lunatic is heading up CIA operations in foreign countries. Uh, it's It's tough for me to understand why anyone... Like why Quinn would be that attracted to her and why people don't realize that she's manipulating them. And I I don't know. There's a lot of stuff in this show that I really like. There's a lot of stuff in this show that I really don't like. And I'm just not completely on board with it. I agree. I feel like I understand finally what Alan was going crazy about as far as this show seems to feel like. What's interesting about this show is Carrie being a romantically involved with 
people she shouldn't be romantically involved, other people who shouldn't be romantically involved with her being attracted to her, and her female sexuality as it uh, applies to field op- operations. Because that's been a core theme throughout all of the, fa- the all all the seasons. That in several instances, Carrie used the a, a a person's affection for her or connection with her to exploit them for national intelligence purposes. Sure, I mean that she does that to the nth here with the the kid. Yeah, uh, uh, I, I, I don't know. Ian. Yeah, it's like okay. our iron. Uh-huh. Um, I I don't know, man, because I just don't understand why Quinn looks at her and sees a woman that I think he's got full knowledge that she's abandoned her child to be here in Islamabad. And it's no longer because she had to go. I mean, she, he knows <laughs> that she's strong armed people uh-huh. to, to get this to the extent that he was ready to quit the agency. It's like a little broke back mountain. He knows he should quit Carrie, but he just can't. Like she says, I need you. And he's there. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, and he's a broken dude himself, so it's not like he can't understand a certain bit of mental anguish there, which is exactly the dynamic that was between Brody and Carrie when the show first started. And they had I mean, that's the thing, like those two characters had a lot of on screen chemistry and it was interesting. I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like that this show has never been as good as it was in season one. Yeah. There's been three or four episode stretches like I felt like last season, the reveal that Saul and her and her had set up this double, triple agent thing with her being in an insane asylum, being recruited. I thought that was like vintage Homeland and very cool. Hmm. I thought that there was a couple sequences in season two uh, of, of Homeland that was very, you know, captured some of the energy from the best of the 24 seasons where it's just like wheels within wheels within wheels. Hmm. I this it's like I I I don't know I, I feel like that they're trying to recreate Carrie and Brody, which I don't even think was the whole reason I was ever involved in the show. That was definitely yeah. another dramatic, and I liked seeing that char- those characters' chemistry. Mm-hmm. But it was the twists and turns and the plots and trying to guess the characters' motivations and all that. Yeah, but me a, too. A dude that's just basically, I feel like Pete, Quinn's storyline is essentially so far that Carrie, he's in Carrie's friend zone, mm-hmm. which is a concept I kind of see as offensive any, lately anyway. Okay. And. But when, but when she needs something from him. Right. She pulls out that card. Like, you know, I love you, Quinn. Right. You know that. Right. Go fuck yourself. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. She's not saying I know saying you're it. manipulating me. That's what I know. I don't know that she knows that she's manipulating him in that way. That's the thing that's crazy. That's why I feel like, again, the friend zone concept is kind of a little creaky. But the thing with the difference between this season and season one, for example, is there was a lot of ambiguity from Brody. I mean, we yes. knew that he was a brainwashed double agent, or we thought we knew. We but, thought we knew, yeah. But we also knew he's extremely loyal, patriotic Marine. Yeah. And we know that he came back to his family, and how he felt about that situation was kind of deprogramming him, and it was just will-you-won't-he throughout the whole season. But yeah. W- what, with Quinn, what do I got? I mean, he's got PTSD. It's nothing on the level with Brody goes. So it's, it's, no. it's not nearly as interesting. Sure. I, I think a large portion of why. So th- there are a, f- a few things in this show that they've kept from season one, because I haven't seen season two and season three. Uh, so the things that they've kept, like the spycraft stuff, are really good. 
uh saul saul is fantastic in every single scene that he's in and i am wrapped up in like you know at the end of the episode i saw he gets captured sure by the pakistani government and we do care about saul yes absolutely he's a phenomenal character great actor uh, I love watching that guy on screen, and I love watching all the stuff that happens around him. You should check out Princess Bride sometime. I hear it's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see about that. We'll see. Maybe in another 20 years. Uh, <laughs> You're so, holding that for the subable co- uh, commission podcast, you bastard. I am. Uh, so I really love that part of it. The other thing that I loved about season one was that is he, isn't he part with Brody. Like, is he a devil agent? Isn't he a devil agent? What, like, are they going to figure it out? Does he even know? Like, that stuff was awesome. But when we lost Brody, or or really, <laughs> once it focused more on Carrie being crazy, mm-hmm. that's where it started to lose me completely. And now it seems like they haven't done a ton of that yet. I mean, they, they did in the first two episodes, but the last three She's I watched. She's been remarkably stable yeah. other than trying to drown her baby. Which, there which, you which go. was the first two episodes. Like They came yeah, back yeah. strong with the yeah. crazy carry in the first yeah. couple. And then the last three, I haven't seen any of that, really. Okay. She's been manipulative. She's sure. been in uh, blackmailing people. and Completely in denial of her own problems. Yes. And how compromised she is as a but person. But she hasn't been very crazy. Do you feel like that they're trying to recreate some of that Brody will-he-won't-he with the Ion character? Because there's a, a lot bit. of... I like his story. I like I his too. story a lot. And the Life of Pi Kid is a good actor. And I'm yeah. I'm really interested to see how this, like, him squirreling away all these drugs and hiding it with his girlfriend. Yeah. And her father smashed it up and called you a drug dealer and now he's kicked out of university. Mm-hmm. I don't know where that's all going. And other than giving him, what, was it $500? It was like 80,000 rupees. Yeah, 500 bucks. Uh, To what end, we don't know. Well, we might know as of last night, but I haven't seen that. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So I I don't know. I I feel like they're trying to recreate a little bit of that because there is this, you know, he is trying to protect his uncle for some reason. Mm -hmm. He's very visibly upset that she would suggest that he's still alive. He eventually came back to like saying, yeah, no, he's still totally alive. Mm -hmm. It felt. It felt really weird to see her seduce him because it felt like something that didn't uh-huh. even need to happen. Like, I get why she's doing it. Like, she's trying to make this kid just completely, like, not not trust her, but, like, uh, almost be indebted to her in a perverse sort of way. Well, that's the thing. She and says... Just be so attached to her that he won't leave. I only have three days to completely win this guy's heart and mind. Yeah. But what's w- interesting is that she... Un, un, and and it, I have if if the father hadn't busted up his drug stash mm-hmm. and if he hadn't gotten kicked out of university and if the shadowy agent wasn't hunting him down, I could see her trying to play the, you know, pull the V card, pull, you know, and say and, and offer that up. Yeah. But I felt like the way things worked out, he really needed her. And, and the her come on was so strong and out of the blue. Yeah. And also it then made an obviously uh, a problem with his his faith that it almost like drove it, it became damn. She had to bully him into staying so he didn't run away because now he's worried about, you know, how how uh, his 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 views on Islam uh, affect his him, him fucking carry. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, it just felt like and it seems like the head of a CIA operation in those countries would understand that maybe. 
a little bit more that what I'm doing here is not this is not like a 17 year old in america no, this... where the first thing on their mind is fucking at all times yeah this is like a kid who's pretty devoted to his religion and might not even want to do that stuff and he's a career introvert uh, yeah no I, it felt like the, just she came after him so hard yeah like her as a cover as a professional journalist is that standing operating procedure like hey can i get an interview and also i'm gonna put my hand on your thigh and i'm gonna start kissing you and say is this okay she I, goes after everything pretty hard, though, honestly. I mean, she goes no straight nuance. to blackmail with, uh, right. to get her job back. Like, right. There, there is no nuance in her life. It's, it's I'm going to do what I'm going to do to reach my goals. And, you know, to some degree, I'm sure heads of CIA operations need to be that way. You also see a lot of the the um, 24 blueprints here where everyone that works in her uh, the CIA office seems like they all have agendas against her. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's like she shows up and there was already a power struggle from day one of this bill guy. Mm-hmm. And she was supposed to get the job that she blackmailed her way into. Right. And, you know, she said, I need you to be honest. And then he asked her a simple, like he said, it's, this is an innocent question. I got promoted this job a I day don't later. I think it was though. You don't think that's a, a question that you can ask behind closed I think doors? He was impl- no, I think he was implying things. Oh, you think he's implied that she was fucking her way there? Either that or she that she didn't earn that legitimately. Interesting. And, yeah. and that was the whole point of him saying, that's a perfectly legitimate question. I don't know, because I, I took it at face value. It is a legitimate question. I, I got offered this promotion. It can be, 24 yeah. hours later, I found that. So what the fuck? What is going on here? I feel like that's not the question you would ask her. You would ask the guy who gave her the job. That yeah, position. I guess. The guy who told you, sorry, you're not going to get that job after all. Yeah, I don't know. I did just it just it feels like in a remarkably dysfunctional office environment. And that's it's interesting. There's a there's yeah. a, a New York Times. I think it's New York Times. I think it's Washington Post. I will look it up and put it in the show notes. But there is a an ex ex intelligence operative um, that is going through and watching these kind of similar to the series of Orange and New Black, where it's like, we're going to watch this with a convicted felon mm-hmm. and he'll tell you like what parts are real what parts are not and they <laughs> he grades it mission success and mission failed and consistently he praises the show's field spycraft like the plots that they cook the way they go about recruiting agents the technologies they use he's like this is all really relevant and and pretty strong stuff mm-hmm. the things he consistently pans is the inter-office politics how much hmm. that you just how, how much that that openly defying your boss in staff meetings and stuff is just something not done because the way he explained it beautifully. He's like, look, even if you don't believe in the person, you have to believe in the process. Yeah. That you, there, there's a culture of chain of command that this is a paramilitary organization. And even if you don't like the boss, if you have pretensions to be in his spot one day, you don't want to create a culture where you're openly defying and everybody does their own thing. Because when you're in that spot, you've trained all the underlings to basically be as treacherous and bullshit. And that just stuff wouldn't fly. And that's, that's feels very like a valid criticism to me. That would just eat the operation from the inside out. But it's very, it's very 24. The fact sure, that Jack Bauer, Jack Bauer is always cowboying up and he's always right and he's always, you're a yeah. pain in the ass for all of your bosses, Bauer, and I'm going to bust you down and, oh, we'll see what the president says about that. And I, I don't know why they have to go there. Well, it's doubly so in an organization that has as many secrets 
as the CIA sure. has, right? Right. I mean, you may not have the clearance that your boss has, and when he tells you to do something, right. it's probably because he has better information than you. Right. And the fact that it seems like there's a lot of compartmentalization for no good reason, like, mm-hmm. she's got a whole... I, I don't know. It's weird because she's got this whole team and then she's got this whole team that's off the books running out of the journalist organization. Why can't the branch be in on that? Because they thought that there was a leak, that, that Sandy was compromised somehow. Hmm. They think that they're infiltrated. I, I, That wasn't made clear to me. It, it wasn't to me either, no. Do you think the scene where Saul was tailing the terrorists... Do you think that that I got the idea that this is a man whose field skills have slipped Hmm. and that he pretty much was responsible for his own demise? I could see that. I mean, he has been out of the the uh, public sector for a long time because, you know, when he, he bumped into him in the gift shop. And he was like, literally, Jesus Christ, when he bumped into the guy. And I thought it was maybe he was going to plant something on him. Uh, but it turned out, I think he just fucked up. <laughs> I I don't remember that scene. Yeah, there, okay. he's tailing him through the airport. Yeah. And he he kind of loses him in, in a gift shop. And he's kind of wandering around the aisles, obviously kind of snooping around. And he runs right smack into the guy. Uh, okay. And I thought that's when he got burned. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I felt like that they were showing Saul as a guy who wants to get back out in there or and and now and he did get back out there but his skills just aren't aren't good enough sure i could see that contrasted is to i thought there's really great scene where carrie like goes into a cab you know uses the 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 local kids to kind of surround her provide a distraction exits out walks through a building gets into another cab like that you know that's that feels like somebody that's like current in their field craft and on their toes with the versus saul who's you know, bumbling his way through a gift shop, running into the terrorist suspect and calling attention to himself. (laughs) And also the fact that his profile is so high. He's the former director of the CIA. Sure. I imagine he might even know what Saul looks like. It's I'm, I'm guessing that we're not the only organization passing around decks of playing cards with high ranking officers. I mean, it feels like that Al Qaeda or the Taliban would know at least who the director of the CIA, probably his assistant directors. Yeah. Uh, you know, it seems like that you know, the, one of the big plots is how on our side is Pakistan, really, because they have these internal agencies that sure. have got the own operations. And maybe there is a state sanction, a state sanctioned killing of one of our agents, yeah. very high ranking bureau chief. And I think that's kind of interesting, too. But, yeah, I mean, Saul, you're running around as like maybe the number two or three biggest target mm-hmm. in that part of the world. Yeah. No, you get you got to think you're going to be recognized. It's so he's not actually back in any kind of official capacity here, right? He's just kind of hanging out doing Carrie's bidding a little bit. Well, I don't I don't know. I like feel like he's still the in the private, private sector and she uh-huh. asked him to get all these private sector resources for him. Yeah. Cuz that's who the little twerpy equipment guy is and that's who Farah is. Like I feel like they they sure. he's hired them for But his, he doesn't have any real support. No, and they she even made it clear that none of those people working in his office have any in official cover. So really yeah. be careful because if you get in trouble, the CIA is like <laughs> legitimately I have no idea why they're yeah, here. They say that every time anyway, but Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh this time they mean it. No, I I don't know. Um All right, so the fact that he's been captured and is off to who knows where is really bad for Saul. Sure. Extra bad. What What do you think about the stuff they did with? I, I think his name's Bill, the guy who uh, g- got 
demoted demoted because Carrie was there uh with him being approached by who exactly is this i don't i don't know he's being coerced and forced into staying in his job and working oh you're talking about the husband of oh god so these guys look a lot alike do they you're talking about duck phillips from mad men I think so. Bill think is so. the smart ass who is Carrie's kind of thorn in her side. He was okay. going to be the bureau chief and now he's not. The, yeah, Doc so. Phillips is the husband of the ambassador to yes. uh, is I, that I guess is who I'm talking. Yeah. That is who I'm talking about. Okay. And I couldn't tell them apart until they actually got together at the bar. Right. Uh, but so what did you think about that storyline? Is that interesting to you at all? The fact that, you know, he's now been approached and he's got to give his his lover i guess the runaround or it's not his wife? lover i think yeah it's his wife it's his wife and she's i don't know i, I thought it was interesting he just plays mm. as comically inept because there there's this he other, does to her yeah well just but that's uh, the thing like he's a poor recruit because she's like you know well, just tell him whatever and she he tells her like hey i'm going back to states because i got my old job back and she's yeah. like yeah well i got friends there too and you don't come back from plagiarism i guess he plagiarized an entire that's the other thing plagiarize an entire chapter of a book you're going to write it's ridiculous <laughs> ridiculous it would be ballsy to plagiarize a whole paragraph uh-huh. this guy plagiarized a whole fucking chapter in his book and didn't expect anyone to know on a very obscure subject like the inner work so he's of, just a dumbass it's yeah and yeah. i kind of feel that way from duck phillips anyway i mean i feel like he's this close to just going and shitting on his wife's desk uh, and, and letting Chauncey out run around in the traffic of, of Islamabad. Uh, and uh, that casting is working against him, but he yeah, just, maybe. I don't know, man. But you're right. They don't make him particularly bright here. And his, his wife obviously snoops him out and says, yeah, I don't buy any of this shit. Yeah. Um, I have a, I have a hard time taking him credible that he's actually going to be able to pull anything of value off because he's already being tailed. Uh, his wife just thinks he's a dumbass, but she's having a CIA operative tail him and kind of corral him. He's really going to get off on his own enough to be able to have unfettered access to Carrie's apartment. Yeah, see, I I didn't really care much for any of this entire side story here. Yeah. And I don't know. Maybe they'll swing it back around. Maybe but, it'll be But that's the later. problem. If It's like if we saw Carrie recruit the equivalent of the Keystone Cops from the Pakistani intelligence service, we'd be howling at home and be like, you know, watching him like, you know, bumble his way and stammer and yeah, and and get himself killed in some torture room. Right. Yeah. I feel like that's what the Pakistani intelligence service is doing with duck Phillips. And it makes me think that they're not that serious as a threat. So there are a couple levels here, right? Like, first of all, uh, what is his official capacity? Does he have any kind of... I think he's a professor at a local university talking about Western Islamic relations, foreign... foreign okay. He's like a foreign policy, So they're just political. using his proximity to his wife yeah. to actually get some information. Right. That's what I, I'm so, guessing. So there's a leeway for this guy to just be a bumbling idiot. Sure. Right? Like, this is not like bad storytelling. This is just like, maybe it'll come back around and they'll say... So, like yeah this guy was completely incompetent he got himself he gave himself away right away and but the upside like, this him, was a bad choice for us but and, the upside for him is that he's going to be he's going to be obviously convicted of treason like that's that's the other thing when she's like 
hey, uh, you know, once you get out of this, you're done. You don't you don't you, you won't have any further entanglements, but you're also going to be guilty of treason. Yeah, that can get the death penalty in the United States, especially something this high profile and this sensitive. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. It just feels like it feels like why doesn't he just come to his wife? Like he almost spilled his guts to Bill in the bar. Why does he just come to his wife and just tell her, like, this is what's happening? And then they can maybe spin it into a different, he could be the hero. I don't understand, like, why does he have to keep this to himself? I mean, they, they've, they've, they've portrayed him as a very vain, you know, kind of weaselly type of dude, but just feels just unreasonably weaselly. Like, you just go well, to your wife and tell, him, tell her, like, this is, what's, this is what they're asking me to do. I don't know. It's, Help it's me. Every, it's every kidnapping ransom movie ever right like go to the cops and we we will kill you uh it's it's that kind of threat yeah but it's it's different when you're talking about gangsters in your country and they've got you dead to rights for i i guess what's the leverage they have on this guy they're going to threaten to kill him but once he's out of their Uh grasp the cia is very capable of taking him and and moving him back to the united states yeah. Where what are they going to do? The Pakistani intelligence are going to move terrorists just to whack this guy on American soil? It doesn't seem likely. Sure. I don't know. I just I don't yeah. I, I felt like they didn't they didn't have significant enough over his head. It might even I don't know. They didn't threaten his wife at all, did they? Because she kind of has to stay there. She's a, a but, fucking diplomat. But her, her career is going to be destroyed by the way this all works out. Probably, yeah. I mean, if if they if they offered him money or something like that, I guess that that would make more sense. But even then, like what they're offering, I don't know. Escaping with your life doesn't seem like a very good option. It feels like the I in that place, I would roll the dice and and go with the CIA. Hmm. But I don't know. I don't know. That's this is yet another thing that's not really quite working for me in this season. I will say that I, it feels like that cell phones, the inventing of the smartphone has got to be the single best boon to intelligence operations ever. <laughs> because imagine 30 years ago, you're uh-huh. in an airport, you see a terrorist, you got to rush to a payphone, right? Sure. Or you got to be talking into your caller or you got to be talking to yourself. I mean, there's something it's, it's just so obvious what you're doing, whereas everybody's got their phone to the ear and kind of looking around absentmindedly. Everyone could be a, a secret agent. Sure. It's got to be so much harder to snoop, to snoop that stuff out. Yeah. No, definitely. Uh, <laughs> that definitely changed the world. Not only that, but like the drones and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. Like, so, Sar- so, so, so Carrie's recruiting this guy by sexing him up for two solid days. She doesn't even check her voicemail. Like, Quinn's been trying to get a hold of her. It's like, hey, we found the terrorists we're looking for. No shit, Carrie. I need you to call me back. Uh, third message I've left. What the fuck? Saul's being kidnapped. This guy <laughs> is about to ghost. The cleric that you had his tail is about. And it's like, she can't even check her fucking voicemail? No. Too much sex. What is Amon? Ayan? Uh, 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 yeah, Ayan. What is he thinking about her? Like, okay, you're the bureau chief of a of a major journalist newspaper you ask me a couple questions you spend the rest of the time plying me with pastries and fucking me is this your job is this what your job looks like 
Do you, yeah, I don't know. Do you, I mean, it's, it, you have to be getting passports for me and travel permits and covered. Like, like don't. There should be a time for her to slip out and answer a voicemail, not have Peter have to come and knock on her door mm-hmm. and bring her out, which could blow her cover. I just, it just feels like that's so <laughs> unacceptable that she, the bureau chief, can go out and be fucking this dude for two solid days with no contact whatsoever. She does whatever she wants. <sighs> Nobody's there to tell her no. I don't know. So I heard last week's episode or last night's episode, just judging from uh, comments on uh, Reddit and some feedback I've gotten was the super strong episode that makes everybody reinvest in the show. I'll probably want to check it out, but I I don't know. It's going to have to be a hell of an episode for me to kind of stick with it. Yeah. Yeah. I am interested in this all stuff. Like I said, and I'm, I don't know. I'm interested in the plot. I'm just not. A Carrie fan, I guess. If they kill Saul, do you riot? What's... Oh, man. I feel like he's one of the few characters. And uh, whoever Saul's like uh, evil shadow of the CIA is, his, name's, his name is like Bar? Ball? The guy who's riding around on the motorcycle? No, no, no. The guy that's like uh, uh, evil a goatee guy. He's bald. He's like, he's like uh, Saul with a less impressive beard. He's just got the, the hmm. goatee. He's like, the, really he's like the spy mask, you know, because he was big season two, season three. So he's just some some new asshole to you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of I don't know who he is. He's the one that uh, went in and threatened Quinn when he flunked out of his psychology test. Which that's another thing like this guy's okay. So this guy's a C. So Quinn's a CIA wet works pro. <laughs> he knows there's a procedure for getting out of the CIA, and there's good reasons for that, right? Mm-hmm. You can't just have an agent nope out and go live his life and be like, all right, hand in your employee badge and your your Dell Tough book and, <laughs> you know, let us know if you need a reference. Uh, and he goes in and talks to this person, and she starts asking pertinent questions like, tell me about the two people you had to kill. Are you romantically involved with the person that you were protecting there? And he goes, fuck you fuck this walks out and then wants to stonewall the cia get the fuck out of here Yeah, as if he wasn't expecting those questions yeah and then be offended when the guy comes and checks on you and has a like you're a trained well, to killer be, to be fair he did think they were insinuating that he had so let Corey stoll die so in order to save uh Claire Danes. Like, I just get the feeling that debriefings like that after a colossal fuck-up are going to be uncomfortable, and you should be prepared to answer uncomfortable questions. And if you can't, sure, that probably means the CIA has to worry about you. The CIA apparently doesn't think that psychosis is a problem, though. <laughs> right. I mean, this is a tortured fucking soul. He right. Is, he makes the point that he has not had a single incident in the two years. The CIA worries more about the sanity of the people leaving yes. the organization than the people running station chiefs yes. in insanely critical areas of the world. That's the fucking problem. Like, you're not the station chief for London. Maybe you can have <laughs> some psychological problems because, you know, yeah. if we go to war with Britain shit's gone gotten real you can be uh a bipolar station chief for for brazil maybe sure uh sure japan as a matter of fact they're just interviewing him for a promotion is what they're actually doing (laughs) yeah 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 uh what the fuck man i know that carrie has had many many more breakdowns and when she was under saul and saul was kind of protecting her maybe i understand that a little bit more that she hasn't been totally booted out of this organization yeah but saul has nothing to do with it now these are 
presumably rational actor is allowing an insane person to lead them. I'm just saying that I like Quinn. I want Quinn to be better. And for Quinn to like completely stonewall them, then this guy shows up with a bodyguard and he's offended. He shows up the bodyguard and 30 seconds later almost chokes him to death. Uh, yeah. Proving yeah. that he should have had oh, the bodyguard with F. him all Murray along. Abraham? Is that who you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. If you had said his name, yeah. Bald, less impressive beard, sure. Yes. Okay. No, I actually kind of I've grown to like him. He was such a a, a cock in the, the, the season two. <laughs> and he, he always kind of plays that. Fair point. Fair point. Uh, He's good at it. Yeah. So I don't know. I There's a lot of problems with this season. And there seem like they're self-inflicted wounds. Yeah. I yeah. mean, they had a clean slate, man. They had a clean slate with this thing. And they've, they've gone back to the scary and inappropriate sexual relationships with people. People, uh, you know... Someone's carrying a torch for Carrie, and she's oblivious to it. Not, I, I mean, but, but wouldn't it be weird if they didn't? Like, what if Carrie's character changed so much that she's not even really Carrie anymore? Is that that's not very faithful to who Carrie is? I don't right? know because Carrie's always been the person. Like, she comes home for a hard day. She takes her antipsychotics. She she drinks a <laughs> bottle of wine, and she goes have random hookup sex with strangers. Yeah. And then kicks him out the next morning, and then she's kind of like a weird, emotionally detached robot with okay. everyone's relationships except for Brody. Hmm. Even this, it's like, it's kind of kooky, the the fact that she's having sex with this guy, and she comes on so strong, and the second, and, and I guess this guy's a virgin, so he doesn't know any better, but the second time they're having sex, she just starts crying for no reason. <laughs> and it's like... <laughs> I get that this kid's like a 20-year-old Pakistani virgin college student, Uh, but at what point do you're like, you know, my uncle might be a terrorist, but he told me once never to stick my dick in crazy. (laughs) I'm noping out of here. I'm taking my mysterious drug bag and my drone strike survival, and I'm just noping out of here. I'll take my chances with the terrorist, crazy lady. Yeah, no, she's clearly crazy. Uh, All right, so I think we've said enough about that. Sure, I don't think the show's bad. I, th- I think the show is mediocre at this point. And I do. I, f- I catch myself getting really engrossed in a particular thing, and then it, like, I really like the kid. Yeah. And then they decided to throw a heaping helping a carry on that plot line, and now I'm less involved because it le- seems like he's dumber, the situation's dumber, everything got less yeah. nuanced. I I almost hate to say this kind of stuff because I think that... Claire Danes does a great job playing that character. It's just the character. Does. It's her, the character herself is unlikable. Yeah, and I don't in have every a, regard. I don't have a problem with that because I kind of think it's interesting. Like I was yeah. one. I wasn't defending her trying to murder her child, but I thought that was an, <laughs> to say the least an interesting dramatic choice. Sure. Yeah. Um, and not interesting in like a pejorative sense of the word. I was like, wow, that felt true to what someone like that would do. And then uh-huh. like her trying to get the hell away from her own family felt more noble and heroic just because like she's trying to protect oh, them. Oh, not to me, but well, but, I'm but saying, I get what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I don't know, but her involvement, this, this, this poor boy, just something's rubbing me. Uh, not only is it just inappropriate, but just something's rubbing me the wrong way about, uh, that involvement, but that's all I got to say. Okay. I'm going to check out this week's episode and see what I think. Um, uh, maybe, and, and we'll see where it goes, but that's so far, not not a huge huge fan of the direction it's going yeah 
Okay, we're moving away from Homeland. We're going on to the Nick with the Bowman. But before we do that, we're going to pay a few bills. There's a lot of great ways you can support Bald Move. For example, patreon.com slash bald move. There's so many things you can do to get extra content. You can get behind-the-scenes looks at Bald Move. You can get ad-free podcasts. You never have to listen to me and Jim beg you for money again. <laughs> it's a great deal. It's a win-win. We're doing these weekly lunch with Jim and Aarons, which have been a lot yeah. of fun. I'm having a ton of fun with those. Uh, it's, people seem to be enjoying them. You we, can, we get pretty silly in those, too. We, we've carved pumpkins. Uh-huh. Uh, last week, we shut off the lights in the studio. We told scary stories in the dark for Halloween. Yep. Uh, what will we be doing next? I frankly have no idea, but we'll be doing it. <laughs> and the cool thing is, at the top Patreon level, you can actually tune in live. And uh, we got the Q&A app on Google Hangouts, so you can submit questions and you can get the answers to them. Hang out with some of the other Bald Move fans. We've got the forums are coming. We actually have it installed and ready to go. We're testing them right now. We're working out some kinks with the login issues because we know... Who wants multiple logins? I don't want multiple logins. No. We want single sign-on. We want to accept most social media platforms as a, as a way to sign on to that stuff to make your life easier. So that's coming. Uh, you also still got Subbable. Yeah, that's the place you want to go if you want to have a custom podcast. We've got a couple custom uh, commission podcasts, rather, coming down the pike. They'll mm-hmm. be released in the next couple weeks. We're excited about those. We got Amazon. Oh, my God. Amazon. Whew, we are just taking Bezos to the penny piggy bank. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. is not a big fan of what we're doing here with his affiliate link. Too uh, bad, Bezos. Too bad. Yeah, you, if, if you don't want to steal in your pennies, you shouldn't yeah. have an affiliate account. He's tearing all the wires out of his house looking for <laughs> copper. <laughs> he got to have the copper. Yeah. Uh, it's been a little cool. In Seattle, he decided Mm -hmm. that he ripped his air conditioner apart, got the copper out of there, because that's how desperate he is. Yep. That's how desperate he is. He's going to be sorry come next summer. (laughs) But uh, we're going to keep taking him to the penny cleaners, amazon.baldmove.com, for you to do your part uh, of helping us rob him of his pennies. You get all the same great Amazon stuff, but you use amazon.baldmove.com, and everything you buy in that session also steals pennies from Bezos, gives them to us. Well, that's all for pimping. And now let's get to the Bowman. Uh, joining me now is Shane Bowman from the Nattercast, uh, a podcast series where he contributes to the Game of Thrones coverage, uh, the Sons of Anarchy, Anarchy cover, coverage. My God, I can't get it out. Uh, as well as he's the proprietor of the Heisenberg Chronicles, which you're probably familiar with. If you were joining us for our season one rewatch of Breaking Bad, he contributed the companion piece to each one that was just excellent. So thank you, Shane, and thank you for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me, Aaron. We are talking about the Nick. Yes. Uh, we met uh, face-to-face for the first time a couple weeks ago down in Atlanta, and uh, you mentioned that you had uh, a couple of uh, picks, a couple of nits you wanted to pick with my take on the Nick. And since Jim doesn't watch it, I figured I would scratch that Nick itch with you. <laughs> uh, I kind of laid out my my early season concerns um i will say that my views have changed somewhat in the back half of the season mm-hmm. but my concerns were i wasn't sure if the social consciousness of the show was sufficient to justify some of the kind of awful things that they were portraying uh about the the the, the back then contemporary culture as it relates to this particular black doctor black uh Dr. Algernon mm-hmm. uh, I was kind of concerned about the you know heroic doctor 
on heroic doses of cocaine kind of trope that I've seen a lot of different times, the drug addicted, drug addled doctor plot. But I did think that there's a lot of great characters. Um, what, what problems did you, and then also obviously the thing looks like a million bucks every single episode. Uh, what, what problems do you have with my, with my take or, and then let's just kind of talk about the series as a whole. Well, I mean, you know, the, the part that I found, I mean, you, you kind of were knit, knitting on the, the racial component of the show, right? And was there really a payoff for, um, the significant, uh, racial, well, I mean, let's just say it's with, with Algernon, you know, I mean, every time somebody made some kind of comment about, um, about being black, right. It just, it, he kind of got this wincing flinch about him. Like, you know, that he was tolerating a, an injustice that he wasn't used to tolerating. Right. Cause he spent all this time in London and Paris and working in more progressive, uh, at least racially progressive societies sure. where he was accepted. And now to come back to New York where he was raised in a family uh, that were um, essentially all servants, right? His father was mm-hmm. the driver. His mother was a, a, a maid. It wasn't like he wasn't, he didn't know that's where he was going, right? He knew he was coming back to New York where things aren't the same. And, right. uh, but yet he had to strive to persevere, right? He, you know, you talked about the, the basement uh, clinic that he set up. Mm-hmm. And um, I I do really think that, a lot of what we saw, whether it was uh, racial slurs or ethnic slurs or uh, other types of even societal class-based slurs in, on the show, were really just representative of the time. I mean, every interview, Steven Soderbergh talks about how we tend to sugarcoat the past when it comes to some of these more uh, period pieces from 1800s, 1900s about how great it was. You know? That's true. And... Uh, instead he was really going kind of across the board for, this is the way things really were. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's this great quote he had about, you know, you tend to look back at the past and say, oh, things were so much nicer back then, but thank God it's 2014. And whether it was the surgeries or, um, you know, the class or the racial dynamics of the time, all of those things made you appreciate the present, much more than I think one of these sugar-coated uh, period dramas that kind of has very specific characters that are meant to um, end on a more hopeful note, right? Well, this show didn't end on a more hopeful note. I mean, there were <laughs> no, it did not. There, there were moments of victory of uh, uh, of people achieving something despite their condition and despite their environment, but it never left you on this like la 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 la, you know, sort of really beatific moments, you know, which I think a lot of period dramas really tend to do, you know, I mean, I, I, just by accident, I watched the, one episode of this show and then an episode of the recent, you know, the current Downton Abbey that's being aired in the BBC back to back. That was a trip. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, not just the, the dialogue and the acting style and, you know, the whole dynamic, you really saw what, I think Soderbergh was trying to, you know, uh, go for here. And, uh, in that regard, a lot of the racial components, a lot of the class components really didn't bother me as much as 
as much as it did some people. And, you know, it is kind of fascinating to watch people debate. I don't know if you've read any of the reviews where there are people actually in the comment sections debating about whether Thack is or isn't a racist. Well, I mean, that's I guess that's the crux of my real problem or what made me uncomfortable watching it is the fact that usually when you have something like this, if they don't go the sugarcoat route, you at least have one of the protagonists that uh, is is sympathetic. Mm -hmm. And here we had Dr. Thackeray, who was just as big an unrepentant racist as everybody else and just as dismissive of of this talented black man. And there was no like for the first three episodes, there was no real let up of that. Right. It was just outright oppression. And then when he turned the corner and he went down and he found, um, you know, the la- the the laboratory that Algernon had set up, the clinic and all the research he had done and, and the innovative hernia repair technique and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. He started to come around, but it never felt like. He's like, oh, yeah, I guess I guess I guess black people can be just as smart as white people. It felt like, you know, the Candyland Ranch in in Django Unchained, where he's mm-hmm. like, yes, I found my exceptional Negro and I'll allow him to to play to be my second fiddle. And I, I think that overall, the series finally got there. We saw the race riot, mm-hmm. um, which was the opposite of what we usually consider of a race riot. It's mm-hmm. it's the the white immigrant population in new york city going fucking bananas over some uh you, you know kind of tr- uh, uh, uh something that happened in their community uh we saw the relationship algernon had with uh shit what's her name cornelia cornelia the administrator of the hospital and how even in europe we know we kind of got the sense that this equality goes to a certain point like there's no place you can go to raise a, a raise a mixed race baby in the world where you're not going to have a, a, a bad time in, in the 1920s. So I felt like they finally got some of that shading, but for the first solid half of the series, I was, I, I was really uncomfortable with how they were portraying the heroic people and their attitudes towards Dr. Algernon. But that might just be me and, and my uncomfort that situation. It's interesting you say that people debated whether Thackeray is a racist. I, what's the argument that he wasn't? Well, uh, I, I can't say that these debates interested me that much for me to really noodle into why did people care one way or the other, because I, okay. thought, I thought it was pretty obvious. But there were some people that brought up the you know, evidence in the race riot scenes where you know, it was really Thackeray and Cleary are the and and Cornelia and Nurse Lucy, these are the white people who actually are actively uh, working to save black people, whereas people like Gallinger and Barrow and other characters are willing to just dispense with them, throw them out into the street like dogs. Yeah, there's definitely levels of unrepentant racism. I feel like the former you mentioned still saw them as human, still saw the the uh, the African-American community at the time mm-hmm. being human beings. Right. They just were kind of, oh, I don't know if I want them in high society. I don't know if I want them operating on me, but you could, you shouldn't just run them down and kill them in the street like dogs. Whereas then it was amazing how just how little of a shit, uh, Barrow cares about anybody, but kind of himself and his, his whore mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, and his money troubles. 
Um, well, I, I thought during this whole discussion, you brought up one of my other kind of nits with uh, some things you said about the Nick in the past, specifically about why does Thackeray uh, essentially accept Algernon, right? Mm-hmm. And I, it's com- you have to have a kind of an appreciation for for addicts and the way addicts think. I think to to get this um, a little bit beyond the surface of what's shown because it's all incredibly selfishly motivated and ego-driven, right? Uh, you know, Thackeray does have a bit of practical uh, going for him in the sense that he, when he first uh, starts to debate about whether Algernon should be part of this hospital or not, a lot of his debate is about the practicalities of it. You know, we serve a lower immigrant class of people here at the NIC, and they aren't going to tolerate having a black doctor. Right. Right. That's one of his primary complaints. And that isn't uh, that isn't being racist. That's being practical. Right. Okay. And, uh, you know, if you kind of listen to some of the history uh, that's being discussed around the show, there wasn't a a black doctor in a white hospital uh, until 1920. I mean, this would have been very radical for its time. I know. I totally agree. I also think that there's a part of that that says. You know, I, I, I've heard people even make um, comments like that in recent times about like, you know, well, I'm not racist, but you got to understand our clients and our customers feel right. a certain way. Right. And kind of like that was like echoing of like last season's Mad Men mm-hmm. uh, with with Burt Cooper's like, you know, I don't mind black folk working here, but let's not let's not put them out in the reception desk. I mean, come on, people might get the right idea. I don't care. But and I it's like I that feels kind of like an intellectual fig leaf that a lot of uh, so-called enlightened people like to, to use, but it's sure. still, yeah. Well, but, uh, you know, that, that aside, I think Thackeray's goal is uh, completely ego-driven self-seeking, right? That's, that's truly the way addicts work. And if you he gets down into that basement and sees what Algernon is doing. And I think it's uh, completely selfishly motivated his decision to bring him upstairs and bring him into the operating theater. I think he can learn a lot from this guy, but I think he also thinks I can get further with this guy. And yeah, that's, like, that's like all can, he cares about. I can take this man's research, write a paper, put my name first and put his name second if at all and this man will not complain exactly yeah that's that's a good point i mean you, you i think in fact they they underscore it in the back half because that's where his addiction mania kind of goes off the deep end you know is 90 percent of the decisions he makes maybe even more are all driven around this sort of uh ego and uh, uh self-seeking play the thing i didn't really I, I really missed from the Nick is a more nuanced understanding and appreciation of Thackeray. I thought it stayed pretty surfacey. Whereas, you know, in shows like Breaking Bad and Mad Men, the antiheroes are more nuanced. I don't think Thackeray is very nuanced at all. Well, we didn't get anything. I mean, they even really didn't do anything with his former lover who was suffering from syphilis. Uh, we didn't get, uh, we, we don't really understand what is driving his pain other than, the the weight of all the death that he causes. I right. mean, I think that we're supposed to read between the lines and see his mentor 
blows his head off in the first episode because of the psychic toll of cutting on this much flesh and causing this much death in 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 hopes of one day getting to a place where we're at now where we expect to go under the knife and we're going to wake up and everything's going to be fine um i kind of feel like we're supposed to understand just that from context but i did feel like there was an episode missing where we see you know why is he so driven why is he Mm -hmm. you know have to abuse i mean the reason he started cocaine was not recreational uh it's because it was his his mentor's way of cheating the clock which is the same thing as cheating death. If they can put mm-hmm. in a 20-hour day instead of an 18-hour day, that's two more hours of research they can do to refine their surgery before the next morning where they have to cut on someone, probably killing them. Well, that's the way they posited on the show, you know, but there's no way of knowing. I mean, uh, yeah. there's a text, there's a book about the real doctor that Thackeray is sort of semi-based on, a mm-hmm. guy named Halstead who was a doctor in New York and then later at John Hopkins and in uh, DC, I believe it is. But um, the real reason he became addicted to cocaine and for Halstead was he was experimenting on it as an anesthetic. He actually did the experimentation on himself and through that became addicted to it. You know, it wasn't because he was trying to cheat death or, you know, cheat the clock or any of these other things. And so uh, even just something like that would have been an interesting nuance to Thackeray. I mean, but we really don't learn very, we learn very little about his private life or his past or what motivates him. And, um, I, I think that was, I think that was really missing, you know, I mean, Thackeray supposed to be a rock star of his day, right. Sure. In, in the surgical community. And I'm not even sure we get that, you know, yes, he performs in these surgical theaters and it's kind of grand. Uh, and a lot of those are shot from low angle to kind of make him seem larger than life. But I didn't think it really translated, you know, mm. uh, and we do get the, the thing that I thought was most telling about Thackeray was his eulogy for Christensen in the first episode. I mean, I thought that was a master stroke because it it really led us into his mind. Um, but also really pitted his struggle. You know, what exactly was he, is he hoping to achieve what's driving him and other doctors like him? And, you know, at the end of that, he says, I will not stop pushing forward in a hopeless future. And, you know, that is a, that is um, a concept that a lot of the characters are trying to cope with in the show, right? Algernon yeah. won't stop pushing forward, even though he he thinks clearly some parts of the, the future in New York are hopeless. He's not going to stop pushing forward. And I think that's why he does make a connection with Algernon. He sees that despite his disadvantages... He's still pushing forward and and making some remarkable things happen, and he sees a commonality with what he and Algernon are doing. We don't get to see them make that connection in any way possible, other than uh, the hernery hernia surgery, right? right. You know, but uh, uh, Cornelia, on the other hand, uh, I think she does stop pushing forward. Right. You know, by the end of the season and I I think is going to be miserable for it. I think those who don't stop pushing forward, whether it's uh, the uh, sister Harriet or Cleary or any of these other people, they sort of accept the harsh reality that they're in, but they're not going to stop pushing forward. And that's the only real message of hope that's inside this show. Uh, Everything else, the 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 overwhelming reality that they live in is still pretty bleak. Yeah. 
you know. Well, and I thought it was interesting that almost every character that we uh, see as you know a, a protagonist, with the possible exception of Barrow, has that moment where they do something heroic in mm-hmm. service of progress. Like uh, Cleary, for example, <laughs> uh, pulled his own ambulance cart mm-hmm. uh, when the horses got ran off in a race riot to to help save lives. I mean, there's this man who's just heaving with all his might to pull a cart that two two strong horses are supposed to be pulling. Um, and that you're right. This, that, that showing that the struggle itself is noble. And, and honestly, that's the struggle that causes progress. You know, if everybody just like, fuck this, I'm giving <laughs> up, nothing would ever get done. Yeah. So that's, uh, all great. And in fact, the second half of the episode or the second half of the season where it's one of those things where it's kind of like Wolf and Wall, Wolf in the Wall Street where, you know, it's like these drugs are awesome and they're just, giving me awesome powers and I'm just living this awesome life. It was kind of subverted in that, uh, for no, through no fault of his own or through no action of his own, the drug supply got dried up mm-hmm. because of the war in the Philippines. And now all of a sudden this doctor who, as you said, is a rock star, he's a professional. Um, he has high minded ethics is reduced to, uh, a street addict mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. And I thought the way that Soderbergh delivered that, with his filmmaking techniques and the like extreme close-ups of uh Thackeray's sweaty hammy face mm-hmm. <laughs> sitting through lecture lectures and being fidgety and you know counting down the minutes so he could get away and and use his dwindling supply uh and and just the crash that he experienced I thought was pretty pretty fascinating to see uh you know a your hero uh be that depraved and to mm-hmm. to drag along um the innocent nurse along with his decline um well the- you know you know we've seen this before you know i mean uh we we saw house you know crash and burn i don't know how many times uh, you know uh Hugh Laurie's character and you know he did that so so well uh, they did that so well here. Here, I think what made the difference was kind of what you're alluding to is Soderbergh's directing and and the style in which that whole crash is delivered. You know, I mean, I, I, I felt like it put it in uh, put us inside the skin of an addict. Exactly. I mean, I was so tense during this entire episode. I think that one episode probably had more cuts in it than you know the previous five episodes combined. Sure. You know, and that whole cut to Thackeray's face, cut to the speaker, cut to Thackeray's face, you know, and that whole sort of jitteriness and sweatiness and everything. I mean, uh, we had a couple of people in some of the groups that participate point out that, you know, the addiction that they portray is a little bit more on the side of opiate addiction than it is on cocaine addiction in terms of the withdrawal that's being portrayed. Uh, but I didn't really have so much a problem with that since Thack is obviously using, you know, two, three, four different kinds of drugs. Yeah. And he's on opium. He's on cocaine. God knows what else. And, he's and also, drinking. he's drinking like a fish. It's true. True. On top of all that. And right. and also if, if you really want to see the uh, opiate with, uh, withdrawal, Good news, season two apparently is setting up for him to be addicted to heroin, <laughs> which is I thought that uh the I thought the finale honestly it felt like season one was one long pilot episode mm-hmm. establishing the plots for season two because uh that that reveal at the end I thought was as as beautiful a piece of dark, grim comedy 
that I've ever seen where he finally checks into this drug treatment facility. The doctor's talking about how they've got this new miracle drug that helps people with withdrawal symptoms and he shoots it up with them and, and Thackeray gets to kind of blissfully go to sleep and the camera foc- it goes from his face and focuses in on the vial of medicine and it mm-hmm. says heroin mm-hmm. and it's safe. It's made by the bear company, the, the, the aspirin people. Uh, hilarious. It is kind of a remarkable that they thought it was non-addictive. I mean, they actually gave it to kids. Sure. You, you know, I mean, but, uh, I think it was originally marketed as like cough syrup or, it, or a cough suppressant. It, it, it really is. Yeah. There was a, an asthma tonic that it was part of, you know, uh-huh. and it was like, you know, the, I think the ad in it said not safe for children under two, but you know, <laughs> three-year-olds drink up, I guess, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, that finale I thought had some really beautiful poignant moments that to me lined up with the rest of the season. And then some other parts I just didn't get at all. Uh, I mean, the Dr. Cotton stuff, you know, um, I'm glad you said that because you're the first person beside myself that I feel like, and it probably because I saw it out of order. Mm-hmm. I saw the boardwalk finale and then I actually saw the, the finale of, uh, the Nick this week, mm-hmm. but it's like, it hit me in the face. It's like, Oh God, this is the same Dr. Cotton, right. you know, pulling teeth and doing experimental surgery 20 years later, you know, 20, 30 years from now, he's still going to be doing the same. Well, no. I yeah, guess that's, it's that's it's, right. It's, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. No. It's, it's the twenty Nick years. Nineteen hundred. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's like twenty years, twenty thirty years later. He's still doing the same shit, right? Without any kind of experimental efficacy, um, and just what he does to uh, Nucky Thompson's wife, <laughs> uh, who plays the exact same character in this as she does in Boardwalk. Right. It's a horror show. Yeah, you know. Um, how did you feel about the whole Gallinger thread? Because they set up Gallinger so prominently in the first part of the season, and they do have this sort of horrific, uh, you know, I thought they humanized Gallinger very well through parts of uh, through parts of the season, and then he just kind of falls off, uh, you, you know. And, uh, I, you know, you thought there was going to be some head-to-head between Gallinger and, um, and Algernon, but instead, it's this, this, I thought it was kind of ham fisted, this little him storming in after seeing his wife with Dr. Cotton sans teeth. Now I'm going to go storm into the operating theater and, and punch Be, Algernon. Again. Uh, yeah. No, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I feel like that maybe Soderbergh's doing all his editing and shooting and scripting is like, I don't know what to do with this guy because he's, he's such a son of a bitch in early goings. He's dealt such a psychological blow uh, after blow. But then what do you do with that man? Like, it's going to take some time to rehabilitate him. What would be his natural reaction to all this? Because he's kind of such a petulant, prideful person. I don't, I, 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 yeah, I, I don't know what he could have done better, especially since I'm just not that interested in Gallinger compared to everybody else on the show. Right, right. Well, I mean, he is kind of a secondary character. I mean, more of a tertiary character, but I mean, we spend all this time with the meningitis sequence going back to, you know, his story throughout. And it's, it is gut-wrenchingly awful, all of what happens to Gallinger. But I don't know. I just think it would have been more of a surprise or more interesting if he had gone in and punched Thackeray instead of Algernon. You know, it just seems silly and, and, um, kind of, 
uh, almost cheap for him to r- go back in and, and punch Algernon, you know, and instead go in and punch Thackeray and then say, you gave up on me. Well, yeah. here's the thing I, I kind of in my, what I thought happened is because, you know, Thackeray excused himself from the chief surgical duties to pursue his insane right. quest to, uh, uh, was what was this guy's name? Gold, it wasn't Goldberg. It was Zinberg. Uh, Zinberg. Yeah. Uh, it beat Zinberg to the blood, the punch on the blood transfusion research. Mm-hmm. So I think I actually think that Gallinger came into the surgical theater expecting to punch out mm. uh, uh, Thackeray, and then seeing Algernon there mm. as the head surgeon was just like his his brain exploded, and he didn't know what to do because you know you you saw. Um, uh, fat come flying in from his office, you know, trying to get ahead of this, 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 this thundercloud. But that's kind of how I saw it happening that maybe that's exactly what he came to do, but he was just flabbergasted that, that Thack wasn't operating in his own operating theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's possible. I, you know, I, I thought the, the weakest part of the Nick was, uh, some of the writing and some of the plotting throughout the first season, whereas because I I thought so much of it was in particular stretches, very nuanced, very elegant, very well thought out and uh, somewhat sophisticated. Whereas in other areas, it just devolves a bit to kind of a, I don't know, a cheap um, soap opera kind of effect, you know, yeah. and uh, that's the one thing Soderbergh didn't do and often doesn't do in uh, a lot of his works. Um, but it, it just didn't seem to hit as well as it could have, you know, there were, there were other parts of the, you know, last couple of episodes that really, really fell apart plotting and writing wise. And, but you saw that throughout the whole season. And, you know, I think that's part of the trick, you know, Soderbergh talks about how we're going to shoot this. They actually did shoot it like a 10 hour movie, you know, everything shot out of sequence. It's not shot linearly. Mm-hmm. And so they're doing every scene in Thack's apartment in one day. Right. And, uh, because that's how you save money and time. And, uh, and this is a actually a remarkably low budget show. Right. You know, th- this is not even House of Cards, uh, right? You, you know, and so um, I, it was I think- kind of like a similar to the Louis deal, where he's like, "I will do this on a shoestring, but I want total control. I'm going to shoot it. I'm going to direct it. I'm right. going to even edit it. Right. And, and I'm, I'm and I'm going to light it. I mean, he, yeah, he's doing everything except writing the thing. And I, not that I don't think the writers did a good job. I just don't think they did a great job. And I don't think they were rising to the level of uh, expertise and craft that Soderbergh has. And I thought that disparity could really be felt through certain stretches of the show. I mean, you know, how they dealt with Bertie's reveal, you know, to, uh, of Thack being an actual addict and that Thack's with Lucy and all that stuff. I just didn't really hit. And I, I didn't think the close of, Cornelia's story because it had such powerful moments throughout the season really ended all that powerfully. Um, it it just didn't really, uh, it didn't really, all the beats never really hit for me on some threads. I mean, even that ping woo, uh, I can't remember wing poo. No, no ping, ping woo, ping woo. I mean, even that felt completely out of place as much as I loved it. I also went, what the fuck, you know, what is this? 
Yeah, I, I, I got to disagree with you there. It came out of complete left field. Uh, and I, I just, I loved it. Like the fact that, you know, when he went to call in Thackeray's favor to deal with the, was a Bunky Collier. Mm-hmm. Um, and Wu took it up on himself. And I'm like, okay, well, so he's going to, there's going to be this kind of Asian mafia and he's going to send his goons. But the man came in himself and did this crazy ass wushu assassination takedown of his entire gang. I thought that was super awesome and amazing. And I'm not sure you're disagreeing with me, but I'm not. And, and then the fact that he also, uh, you know, once again, this, 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 uh, uh, borrows kind of racism and his cultural, uh, provincialism, thinking that this Asian man is something he could just dupe. And you find out that this guy is actually uh, so much worse than Collier and his life is about to really, really get shitty and hellish. That's the way I took it. Yeah. I thought because that's the thing. I hate Barrow. And the whole time I'm watching him, I'm like, am I supposed to root for this guy? This guy seems like he's just a total dirtbag. And it's another metaf- another reflection on ego and addiction mm-hmm. and compulsion. But I felt like he's really set up to get his just desserts here. What was your problem with it? Just the fact that it did come out of left field or? Yeah, well, I, like you, I had a lot of problems with the Barrow st- st- uh, storyline the whole season. A lot of it isn't things we haven't seen. You know, guy, a yeah. guy with a massive gambling debt doing desperate things to hide it, to sustain his uh, sustain his uh, livelihood and, uh, and hide his secret from everyone around him. Sure. Uh, but... I don't know. It just didn't feel, um, it didn't feel of a piece with some of the other things that were going on in that finale. Um, but you know, I don't know. It felt, it reminded me of the crazy stuff that they would do on Deadwood with, um, with, uh, the guy, what they called him Celestials, the guy who ran Mm -hmm. the Celestials in Deadwood. What was his name? Do you remember? I I do not. I don't. I don't. I can't. Uh, uh, Wu Wu was his name. Is another Wu? Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> it was Wu. You know. But I mean, they would do crazy stuff on Deadwood, and this show really did remind me of a lot of the things I loved about Deadwood. You know, uh, there, there's a bit of a, you know, it's a story about people trying to make their way in a hopeless future. They're trying to pioneer something new, and. Uh, uh, despite the difficulty of the surroundings, you know, it isn't as, you know, Deadwood at least was a little bit flatter, you know, in terms of its class system. And, uh, but they still had people who were out and out racist and, uh, people who were clearly, uh, well to do, you know, and, and had money and had privilege and others who didn't. And you put them all in this big, uh, melting pot and stir. Right. I mean, that's essentially the same sort of formula that the Nick is following here. And everything is kind of uh, dirty and grimy. And uh, it, it, it wasn't this beautiful frontier, the West. It was just covered in a lot of dirt and mud and grime and and uh, cheap booze. Right. Sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's something kind of wonderful about that. It's the total opposite of what they kind of do on Hell on Wheels and shows like that, you know. Um, yeah. But speaking of uh, of uh, interesting things, what did you think of the um, what did you think of the score? I kind of totally fell in love with the score this uh, on this show. No, that's that's something that I was listening before we I got on this cast uh, to Seppenwall and Feinberg's podcast, and mm-hmm. they talked about how 
the juxtaposition of the very sophisticated, modern, almost MTV music video camera work, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the handheld shaky cam plus the synth score mm-hmm. gave it this very, it gave it a lot of life and vibrancy mm-hmm. uh, while still really respecting the period nature of the piece. Uh, I loved it. I thought it, 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 it was tense when it needed to be. Mm-hmm. It was quiet and reflective when it needed to be. Um, I, you, I, I just thought it was amazing. Yeah. I thought it was a fantastic choice. I mean, you don't often see these, um, what, what are more classically considered modern techniques applied to a period piece, you know, and these people in the, in the show actually think they're in a modern age. Right. Right. You, you know, and so that's why I think it works. You know, the, you're at the advent of electricity and all this medical discovery and a period of massive immigrant influx of change and your post-civil war era, you know, they, they think we're in an, in a modern age and for its time it was right. It's not the modern age that we live in right now, but uh, Cliff Martinez and, and Soderbergh have been collaborating forever. When I was in college, I was totally in love with sex lies and videotape and, mm-hmm. and uh, thought that was, I went back and listened to some of the score that Martinez did for Soderbergh on that. And it's really not that far off from what he's doing right now. You know, a lot, a lot of people have made the comparison that the way Soderbergh is working on this show is very similar to some of the guerrilla techniques he probably used very early on in films like sex lies and videotape, you know, single source lighting, handheld camera work, uh, you know, very intimate settings. Um, and I think that's one of the things There was a bit of nostalgia for me with the show is I really connected to it the same way I connected to sex lies and videotape that the, the visual grammar of what's being done is so different than what we're fed on a day-to-day basis on TV, you know, and even on great shows like breaking bad. And, uh, although I, I think it did do some, some interesting things visually, uh, Mad Men and game of Thrones and all these shows, they, they aren't really doing things that differently from a construction point of view. Or right? when they do, it's like very showy and splashy and stunt. Yes. Like, you know, yes. as much as I love Breaking Bad, it's like you got the shovel cam, you got the trunk cam, you got the fly cam, you got, and it's like you're pulled out and you're like, look at this shot. Where the Nick, it's just part of the fabric. And, you know, the using like a, you know, modern synth score, like, I, I compared it to like what Baz Luhrmann did on The Great Gatsby, which mm-hmm. I don't think worked quite as well, where it's just conscientiously, mm-hmm. oh, look, they're jamming to Nirvana and they're doing all this stuff. And it, it's very <laughs> it's very showy and like look at me and out on the surface where what Soderbergh's here doing with his camera work and the director and the, the, the musical uh, pieces seem, you know, and he's responsible for making a lot of that stuff hit because he's also editing it. Right. It's it's an entire episode would go by and I'd just be watching a story and not see like a particular shot that's like, Oh wow, my God. But then you start thinking about yeah everything and you realize that it's not, it's not all stunt shots, but it's all so unorthodox that it just becomes part of the, 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 the fabric of, of the show. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, uh, uh, there's a little touch of documentarian, you know, feel to the show, right? With the handheld mm-hmm. and uh, the way they linger on things that, uh, on 
cuts for, you know, they may go 15, 20, 30 seconds just on a person's face throughout a scene while the other person's talking. There's no two shot. There's no cut back and forth. Right. It, right. I, I'm even just talking about the, the, the little minuscule um, second to second grammar of filmmaking that mm-hmm. we're so conditioned to. This is so far apart from that, that, uh, you know, sometimes I get lost in just watching the grammar of the show, mm-hmm. not the story. <laughs> you know, right. I have to go back and rewatch an episode because I was like, damn, I was so in love with this one long, you know, uh, uh, sequence that had no cuts. I didn't even recognize what happened in the scene itself. Uh, so, you, you, uh, you know, for somebody like myself who, you know, uh, at one point I thought I wanted to be a filmmaker and, you know, uh, uh, really, you know, studied at one point the the grammar of filmmaking and and TV shows, you know, visual storytelling. Uh, shows like this are just such an unbelievable treat because right. they don't follow the same rules and formats that we get spoon fed on a day to day basis. I mean, like I watched this show last night called Forever, um, which is it's just like a procedural thing. It's no different than CSI or whatever. And everything is so ridiculously telegraphed. There's nothing interesting about it. You know, it's the complete opposite of a show like this. And uh, I think that's what we're really, you know, I mean, we were talking before the episode about Matt Zoller sites piece uh, on Vulture. It's uh, so it's just look for Soderbergh as doing next level work on the Nick when they really talk about how some of this stuff is born out of the budget that he had. He had an incredibly small budget and there's no way to do some of the things he's doing without a remarkable amount of planning and a lot of very clever thinking on the fly. I mean, this guy's been making visual stories for 25, 30 years. He's a, he's an expert at his craft. He can make decisions quickly, rapidly on the fly. He's not some first time filmmaker. Sure. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, I don't remember which one we were, which, which of your cast I was listening to recently where you're talking about the, this is a first time director on a big, you know, on a big show. Yeah. It's walking dead. This guy literally, uh, the first, first shot he got at directing was the third episode of this season of walking dead. And it just makes me shake my head. Like, Really? That's that seems like a good idea to you people <laughs> to put a guy in front of 15 million people and be like action, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that I think that's what makes shows like this special is they they do give uh, they do give um, people some room to to have creative expression. And, you know, you know that Cinemax was is not given Soderbergh notes on this show. You know, I mean, that's that's one of the other things I wanted to talk about. I know we're we're kind of coming up to the end of your availability, but why this would have fit on HBO just fine, right? And to me, I always understood Cinemax was kind of like the action, sexy, exploitative little brother of HBO. Mm-hmm. Putting the Nick on here kind of blurs that lines, but it also does kind of fit into the sensationalist exploitative stuff as well. Mm-hmm. What, do you do you agree with the strategy put on Cinemax? Do you think that Soderbergh couldn't get the deal he got on HBO? What's the what's the, or is that interesting to you at all? The well, behind the scenes, yeah, I, branding. I, I've heard a, a fair amount about this, uh, about what actually happened, and you know, I'm only getting bits and pieces from, you know, mainstream journalists like Seppenwall or Feinberg or what have you. But uh-huh. apparently, HBO turned it down, and uh, but suggested maybe you 
take it over to Cinemax. And he, this got turned down in a number of places, even with Soderbergh's name attached to it. But I think HBO's development slate was already full. full. I don't think mm. they had uh, space for it. But, you know, what actually happened and how it happened, I, I don't know. Maybe Soderbergh said, I want this amount of control. And they said, well, take it. Let's do it on Cinemax instead of doing it on here. You know, it also could part of be HBO's, you know, the parent company that owns HBO and Cinemax, a longer term strategy of developing out Cinemax, uh, you know, with some prestige drama to go with some of their more B movie type shows like Strike Back or, you know, Banshee, Banshee, which I I really love Banshee. I mean, same here. It's a fantastic uh, little hidden gem. And, you you know, I mean, the ratings over there on Cinemax for this show uh, have got to be minuscule. I haven't. Do you know? Have you have you looked at any of them? Yeah. From what I've read, it's somewhere in the neighborhood bouncing around between 300,000 to 500,000. Oh, God. You you, you know, but I mean, not that many people have Cinemax. That's true. Yeah. I don't even I don't know what it's what it's. Uh, average level of of because uh, it seems like a two million is what you need to be on HBO to be considered a modest hit, right? Right, right. So you know, I I think that just going to Cinemax gave him gave Soderbergh some freedom and uh, enough of a budget to make this happen. And um, I you know I I don't really understand HBO, but uh, you know I thought they thought well. Hey, we know they know that they're going to have this, um, you know, on demand service at some point coming down the road. And if they were smart, they would take shows, a lot of their original programming from Cinemax and HBO and put them together in one offering. So they have a big enough offering, you know, and, uh, you know, so maybe it doesn't really matter, uh, you know, come a year from now or two years from now, whether this is a Cinemax or an HBO show, it'll still end up on the same streaming service. You know, um, but I don't know enough about the inner workings of how shows get made at Cinemax to really know the difference, you know, why, right. why or whatnot. But you know that HBO's, you know, with a lot of their shows, a lot of their big marquee shows going off the air now that, that you know that they've been ramping up with a lot of new shows and maybe they just didn't have the the money to make it happen. But Cinemax did so. Could be. It's hard to believe with the the budget of these shows that that's the case. But yeah, I'm I'm, I'm curious to see because they do have a, a lot of uh, vacancies in their schedule. I mean, True Blood's gone now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boardwalk Empire's gone now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see. And uh, you know, it's already been confirmed that season two's been ordered. Yep, we will be getting another season, uh, presumably with the Nick moving up uptown. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Thackeray somehow addicted to heroin, <laughs> uh, with Barrow uh, hopefully not being fed to the pigs by Wu, mm-hmm. uh, and and see how see I'm really interested in where Cornelia is going because they've set a lot of stuff up where this isn't. I mean, she by marrying this guy, it seems like she is throwing away her promising career as an administrator. Yeah, it seems like she's getting into a very gross relationship with the father-in-law who's going to want to take liberties with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's also marrying a man while she's in love with another man. There's it. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how they maintain that character as being interesting when she's going to lose apparently so much of her agency and so much of the things that make her an interesting character. Yeah. I mean, that's true for, you know, it's almost like they put every character on reset. 
you know, yeah. uh, by the end of the, by the end of the season. And I, I think that's part of why, um, well, let's say if we use the breaking bad model of growth, decay and transformation, mm-hmm. uh, we saw some growth and decay in every character this season. So hopefully we see some meaningful transformation coming up in, in season two, you know, yeah. uh, I mean, I would hate for it to be because I would hate for it to be that we remove the agency from Cornelia and, and she's just now trapped Skylar white style, you know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, that, that, that really isn't that interesting, you know, to then now just put her in a, in a hole and let her suffer. Right. Sure. So, but I'm, I'm very curious to see what they have to do with the, with the next season. I mean, the story of the real, uh, Dr. Halstead is, is kind of interesting after he goes into, to rehab and, and becomes addicted on to, to heroin. Um, he ends up becoming and making fantastic, amazing discoveries. He ends up being essentially a functioning addict for the rest of his life, but he leaves New York, um, and goes and moves to, to Baltimore or DC or somewhere, you know, further down the coast and sort of relocates himself into a different community, which was, you know, plausible back then, uh, you know, to kind of reinvent yourself in other places. But the story, the story of how he actually falls apart in his book is, is uh, pretty ironic, actually. Yeah. He writes a paper about cocaine anesthesia that is so ridiculously messy and bad that they run him out of the surgical society in New York. (laughs) Well, I thought they were, they were, that they were kind of going that way with his, um, uh, what was the, the surgery that he's doing a pregnant woman to address preeclampsia or something with placenta, the bat- placenta previa? There you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it seemed like what he handed Birdie was a hot mess. Uh, and I was wondering if they were that that was going to be part of his downfall. But it, it'll be interesting. I'm yeah. I'm very. Uh, and also, I'm I'm relatively amazed at how well this episode would have worked as a series finale too. Yeah. Um. You know, everybody, it, it, it felt like a very satisfying arc for all the characters to be on while also being interesting for to explore next year. So uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, I need to get you off here so you can get on about your 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 daily life. But thanks for coming on, Shane. Sure. It's fun. We'll, um, we'll have to do it again on Bald Move TV. Sounds great, man. All right. Take care. Do you love Rick Grimes or Daryl Dixon? can't get enough of the Hound and Aria Roadshow? Like Frank Underwood, can you solve all of life's problems with deceit and murder? Show your fan pride. Get exclusive designs on high-quality t-shirts and hoodies to celebrate your favorite shows and characters at merch.baldmove.com. 